0: Uh, we're gonna start with a question today and I'm gonna ask if you would to raise your hands on this one how many of you here today in your life have at least one problem okay leave your hands up for a second Uh, how many of you are sitting next to somebody who has a problem if you don't have a problem how many of you are sitting next to your problem no 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 no, I'm just (laughs) 20 people raise their hand hopefully this morning Uh, You have a problem. If you don't, you can call Danny at our church office, and I'm sure he'll be glad to give you one. Uh, Part of what I want to say right at the start of today is, in a very interesting way, you will be defined by the ultimate biggest problem in your life. Let me say that again. In many ways, you will be defined by the ultimate biggest problem in your life. And what we can do in life is we can choose if we want to devote ourselves to things like how can I be richer or how can I be more successful or how can I be popular or how can I be well-liked? How can I be secure? We can devote ourselves to those questions or we can devote ourselves to a more nobler problem. But in a way, make no mistake about it, we're going to be defined by our problems and the ones that we embrace. In fact, one of the great questions to ask somebody is, what's your problem? You may want to ask somebody that question today before you leave. And when I say that, I mean this. Do you have a problem worthy of your energy, your time, and your life? What are you devoting yourself to solving in this world? How do you want the world to be a different place because you're in it? People who follow Jesus, I really believe, at some point ask, God, what problem in this world would you like me to help you address? I think they embrace problems. Followers of Jesus embrace them. Maybe you're thinking about that today. Here's what I want to say right up front. It's very important that we say this up front in this message. Very often, a sense of what people call calling in life comes when people just begin to pay attention to what moves their heart. A sense of calling comes. I start to know what problem God wants me to work on when I actually pay attention, not just to a bunch of problems that are talked about in the news every day, but what genuinely moves my heart. And I've noticed that when someone sees a problem in the world and they get passionate about it, and they get a little angry, and they get a little fired up, When they say, I've got to do something about that, a lot of times that is the beginning of what we call a calling. Now I bring this up today because we're going to talk about a prophet. We're in this series about the prophets. We're going to talk about a prophet today who had a problem. His name was Nehemiah. We've got a lot to learn from him. We're going to look today just because of time at kind of the first chapter and a half of the book named after him. We're going to start here at uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hacaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, this is Nehemiah talking in this story. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now notice this next line, because it reveals, it reveals the broken heart that is in this story. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In the very beginning of this story, Nehemiah doesn't really have much of a problem. He's an Israelite. He is living in Susa. It is the capital of Persia, which at that time was a superpower. He has a position, as we're going to see in just a moment, of considerable influence in this empire. And one day, his brother comes to visit and he asks about Jerusalem and he's told that it is in ruins. The walls are broken down, the people are in disgrace. And even though Nehemiah's life is going really well, suddenly he experiences a broken heart. Notice that he says, I wept for days. I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed. Let me say a word about this broken wall. The broken wall is a huge deal. Let me try to translate what it means to us in this day. In the ancient world, the wall is what made a city a safe place to live. It meant that there could be commerce, There could be trade. There could be work. There could be prosperity. People would be able to have enough to eat. It would help family life. For example, children can play and not have their parents worrying about what's going to happen to them. It would mean education and it would mean art. It would mean worship. And without walls, which we might think of as a lack of infrastructure or safety, there would be fear, there would be violence. There would be hunger. And worse than that for Nehemiah, there would be spiritual poverty and disgrace. He doesn't just say they're in trouble. He says they're in disgrace. They're spiritually disoriented from their God. So they wonder, where is God? Are we still God's people? Does God still care about us? I want to say this, that we live in a world, friends, with broken walls all over the place. Communities, And we need to ask ourselves, where is there a wall, a broken wall, that breaks my heart? In other words, what's your problem? Today we're going to talk about this concretely. For Nehemiah, it became a broken wall in Jerusalem. He can't stand it. He knows he can't fix it on his own. So he starts by doing something interesting. <laughs> he doesn't do much at all. But he does something very important. He lets his pain go way down deep into his soul. He pours out his heart to God in prayer. And this prayer is so rich that we're going to just kind of read through it. I want you to listen to the first thing that Nehemiah does. He says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. I think it's always interesting when someone reminds God of what they said years before. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's talking about the king of Persia. Folks, this is a phenomenal prayer, and we need to look at the language for a second. Nehemiah is facing this huge problem, but he does not start with how big the problem is. Sometimes that's what prayer deteriorates, in it's kind of out loud worrying about stuff. Nehemiah starts not with how big his prayer or problem is, but how big his God is. You need to understand here, this is getting oriented to reality. Nehemiah lives in a place where Lord the God of heaven lives. And to Nehemiah, heaven is not some place out there. Heaven is the sphere where God's will is being done every day of his life. This means that that God is right there with Nehemiah. Sometimes people will say, you know, I feel like when I pray, my my prayers don't get higher than the ceiling. Well, here's the good news. God's right there with you, so they don't have to. (laughs) They don't have to go any higher than that. He's right there with you. Maybe you should listen this week to the words of Nehemiah when you're praying and just be really honest in your prayer. Don't fake it, but ask yourself, do I really believe there is a great and awesome God who is the Lord of heaven? Do I really believe that, that he is utterly loving and good and gracious? Now, if I don't believe that or if I'm unsure about it, let's just be honest with God about it and say, God, I've got my doubts. And then take them seriously and write them down and talk about them. But Nehemiah begins with this great God. He lays out this huge problem. He confesses his sin and his lack of ability to do this on his own. And then he says, Lord, give your servant success. Now he comes to a place of not just crying about the problem anymore. Now it's time to take action. Let's talk about action. Someone has said that there are three people in the world. You might want to write this down. There are people, some people make things happen. Some people watch things happen. And then some people wonder what happened. Most people will fall into one of these three categories. There are a million people who won't even know about this wall in Jerusalem. There's another million or so who will respond by saying, you know, that's a shame about that wall. Somebody ought to do something about that wall. But there is one person, at least one, that cannot let it go, and his name is Nehemiah. And he knows that this is more than he can do on his own. This is always going to be about what he and God can do together. Now, friends, that is a spiritual reality that we need to live in. There is a God in heaven, and if he wants to do things, and he wants to do them with you, then part of what that means is that your life really is just about getting up in the morning and saying, God, what do you want to do today together? That's the best prayer that maybe you could ever pray. God, what do you want to do together today? Now things get interesting in this story, because we get to this verse. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, "Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, "May the king live forever that 's the kind of thing you're supposed to say to the king. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried in lies in ruins?" and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, this is fabulous stuff. Here's a little backdrop. The text mentions that this happens in the month of Nisan. Now, why does it say that? Well, did you know that this is where the car company gets its name? Nissan? Did you know? How many of you knew that? Good, because it's not true at all. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Nissan. It means, though... That it's the beginning of the year. This would have been four months after the month of Kislev. Remember the story starts in that month. In other words, Nehemiah, who is an activist, speaks not in the first four months. He spends four months waiting, praying, listening. He's having his heart being moved and formed and broken by this broken wall. And when he finally does begin, here's the way he starts. He starts by being sad in the king's presence. Now, remember, he's devastated four months ago. But he was not about to let the king see his face. Now let's talk about why. Why does he decide that one day he's going to be sad? Well, here's why this is such a big deal. As I said before, Nehemiah is uh, an influential person. And the reason that he's influential is he has a job called the cupbearer to the king. And cupbearers generally were entrusted with the royal wines that were served to the king. But they also were usually entrusted with much more than that. In fact, one ancient Babylonian source says that there was another cupbearer, Ahakar. And it said that for Ahakar had been the chief cupbearer, keeper of the signet ring, and in charge of the administration of financial accounts. Now, it seems really weird to me that they would make the wine guy also over the finances. Okay? Could be why the Babylonians are not running things anymore in the world. But they did. And the point of it is that Nehemiah is his high-ranking official. It meant that he was in charge of security. It meant that it was his job to make sure that the king was not poisoned You know, in our day, we talk a lot about security, homeland security, security protocols. Anybody here notice how when somebody kind of like has a high level of security clearance and they leak out sensitive information, they tend to get in trouble? I mean, that's never happened in our country, right? In Nehemiah, in the king's day, the king has all the power. And if he even suspected even remotely that his cupbearer might be disloyal that his cupbearer could be bribed by his enemies that the cupbearer might poison him or allow him to be poisoned listen he would take him out and terminate him that day and friends when i say terminate i mean terminate so he comes to the king and the king says hey cupbearer how you doing And apparently he sees the sadness on Nehemiah's face. Now, if you're the cupbearer, what you should say is, sir, this is the best day of my life. I live for this kind of stuff, sir. I live to make sure that you're secure and safe. Long live the king. (laughs) But for some reason this day, his face just doesn't match up with his words. He's discontent. And the king can see this in his face. And the king says, hey, Nehemiah, are you not happy in your job? Should we talk? You got to remember what this means for Nehemiah. It says not only was he afraid, it says he was very afraid. And Nehemiah takes a chance and he says, king, how can I be happy? Notice he never mentions the name Jerusalem ever. He says, my hometown where I'm from. Now, he's navigating a minefield here, and I'll tell you why in a second. Jerusalem is the country or the capital of a country that Persia now runs. They now occupy, and they're they're over it. If Jerusalem gets rebuilt, it means this. It means that the people could be encouraged to say, you know what? We can revolt against Persia, and we can just kind of like be independent again. In fact, just kind of historically, there's already been at least one attempt to rebuild Jerusalem. In fact, in the book of Ezra, which is right next to Nehemiah in the scriptures, there are two books right next to each other. They go together talking about the same time. The guy who ordered the rebuild of Jerusalem stopped, who said, we're not going to have this, was precisely this same king, Artaxerxes. And as before, he writes, Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? In other words, if these people get power, they're going to think they can do anything and they may revolt. It's not just that he's being sad in front of the king, he's being sad in front of a king that put a stop to rebuilding his city. And what he's basically saying is, hey, king, I need you to reconsider. I think I need you to reverse your decision. And that's what's going on in this story. That's why it's so explosive. He puts his life on the line. And there's silence. And I don't know how long the silence goes on. But then it says these words, and these are fabulous words. It says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Now, I'm going to ask you something. What would you do in that moment when the king of Persia said, what do you want? I love the way the writer writes this. He says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, notice, his first prayer goes on quite long. (laughs) Takes a, a long time to pray. He spends four months in prayer. This one happens in kind of like a second. Kind of a reflex prayer. And the presence of God is so great to Nehemiah that automatically he says, okay, God, how should I say this and what should I say? This is the way life works, friends. This is where deliverance comes from. Then I prayed to my God. Think about this. How would our life be different if most of our conversation started with, I prayed to my God and I said to my spouse. I prayed to my God and I said to my kids. I prayed to my God and I said to my boss. Just a flash prayer. He makes his request. He says these words. If I have found favor, send me to Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild the city. Listen now. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now this is great. This is like huge for Nehemiah. I mean huge. If I was Nehemiah, I would have gotten so excited just absolutely on top of the world, that I would have just ran out of there as fast as I could and said, okay, time to go. But Nehemiah knows he has a bigger problem than just his life. Nehemiah's concern is not Nehemiah. Nehemiah understands that he's working with this great big God for a project for God's kingdom, for his people. So now, instead of running out and saying, wow, that's great, Nehemiah doubles down. Nehemiah says, I'm going to go for broke. (laughs) I also said to him, you have to love this. King, as long as we're on the topic, (laughs) as long as you're in a good mood today, (laughs) as long as I seem to be in favor, he says this. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Now, listen to this. He asked for a military escort. (laughs) He asked the king of Persia, will you put Persian military at my disposal to ensure that I have a safe trip and that this project gets started? And then he says, you know what? We're just going to go for it all. And may I have a letter to Asaph? Keeper of the royal parks, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. In other words, hey, king, can I have the royal credit card? I got to stop by Home Depot on the way, and I'd like the Persian Empire to pick up the tag, not just for the gates, but I got to have some place to live while I'm there too. <laughs> this is great. Listen, he does it even though he's very much afraid. In fact, not just very much, very, very much afraid. His problem is huge. It's bigger than him. But his vision of a renewed Jerusalem is even bigger. That's the reality that Nehemiah lives in. And that's what moves him to say, hey, king, I need some time off. I know it's not in the employee handbook. But can you give me a police escort with cooperation And can you pay for everything? And then these words. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Wow. This isn't just Bible talk, friends. Nehemiah is living in the reality of the kingdom of God. He had tremendous courage, but he didn't trust the courage. He obviously was well prepared, but he didn't just trust his preparation. He trusted his God. And there's a lot of freedom from fear and intimidation and burdens when a human being just lives in the gracious hand of God. Because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. And we're going to stop at this point in the story. But for these last few moments, I just want to return back to this question again. What is your problem? What breaks your heart? Could you identify it right now? Or have you at least started, no matter how young or old you are in this room today, have you thought about what your problem is? If you go through the pages of Scripture, this is a pattern that is mentioned over and over. David can't stand hearing Goliath taunt God's people. And God says, all right, David, you fight. Esther can't stand that God's people are going to be victims of genocidal holocaust. And God says, all right, Esther, you help deliver them. Paul can't stand that the Gentiles don't hear the gospel of Jesus. And God says, all right, Paul, you go tell them. Moses can't stand That his Israelite brothers and sisters are under the yoke of oppression. So God says, okay, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The question is, what breaks your heart? In the world we live in, there are broken walls everywhere. Children go to bed hungry. Unborn lives are still being taken. Human trafficking is on the rise. Kids, listen, lack education in many parts of this world. And they grow up without ever exercising and developing their full potential. Poverty cripples spirits around the world. There are people who've never even heard the name of Jesus. As hard as that is to believe. What is your problem? Let me tell you about a guy, just one guy who found his problem. His name was Lloyd Swenson. Lloyd Swenson had a very serious heart attack. In, his life. In fact, he should have died according to the doctors, but they were able to save him. And after that, he was alive, and he started asking the question. It came to his mind every day. Why am I still here? That's another great question, by the way. Why am I still here? Is the only reason I'm on this earth is just to keep myself on this earth? Or am I supposed to somehow do something? Lord asked himself that question day after day. And one day he heard a speaker talking about how using new technology to take a pre-recorded gospel message to pre-literate people around the world. But he said it requires a special solar panel. They cost $40 each. So it's really hard to make headway on it. Now this is back several years ago, obviously. And Lord Swenson just found his heart pierced by this need for people to hear the gospel. And he couldn't get out of his mind that there were people who couldn't hear it just because these solar panels cost so much. Now, this was a guy who was a salesman for Floorsheim shoes. He never built a solar panel, he had no clue how to do it. He wasn't an engineer, but it broke his heart and he got fired up about it. And he said, Somebody ought to do something about this. So he started praying. And he went to some engineer friends, a couple of people he knew, guys who were part of his men's Bible study in his church. And he said, you know, he says, you guys ought to be able to design a cheaper solar panel for Jesus. So after many attempts and a lot of collaboration things, it ended up that they did, in fact, invent a much less expensive solar panel. It went into mass production. They have now produced tens of thousands those solar panels because one guy one shoe salesman found his broken wall so here's the question again what's your problem now listen it doesn't have to look dramatic it may be dramatic it may be very non dramatic it doesn't need to be something that feels you know makes you feel grandiose We were made to be a part of the kingdom. And maybe your broken wall is very personal, like maybe it's your marriage or your family or the community of Lakeland, or maybe, yes, it is something about the world at large that we live in. But this morning, Oasis just wants to help you take just one step toward identifying what might break your heart. Robbie's going to come. He's going to lead us through communion time. But in conjunction with that communion time, we're going to get a little more specific about what it is that God is stirring in our hearts, what it is that really bothers us. What is our problem? I want you to start thinking about that as Robbie comes. And as he comes, he's going to let you hear from a couple of folks who have a problem. (laughs) Let's listen.
1: So, last week, if, if you were here, and uh, I do have some friends that are coming to be with me on stage. If you were here last week, uh, we had a sermon on Amos. And during that time, we identified 10 groups that had various needs. Come on in, folks. And then we, we had assigned you as you came in uh, to be a part of one of those groups. And then we moved at the end of the service and we said two prayers. We said one prayer to say, uh, God, help these people, help them in need. Are, are they refugees? Are, are they poor? Are they hungry? Are they in prison? Uh, what have you. And we prayed for them. And then our, our second prayer was for us, that God might change our attitude towards them, that we might, might see those people in those situations the way God sees them and that we may act. So today, as we kind of focus in on Nehemiah, we wanted to share with you three concrete examples of folks in Oasis who, who have seen a need and are meeting that need. And so first we're gonna hear from Ted. So Ted, tell me, what's your problem?
2: About 500 to 1,000 kids in jail, most of which have never heard the gospel, that Jesus came to save them. 1979, God called me to to go into the detention center with the kids to tell them about Jesus. And every Sunday morning, I'm in jail. That's what this thing here is about. That's my pass in and out. Um, the, the problem is that many, many of the kids have never heard about Jesus. They live in America, but the gospel is not out there. And part of you for Christ, we give them the the whole message that God came to save them to make them new to change their lives just like Noah had to build a boat took him I don't know how many years when he got the word to do it it didn't happen overnight okay I kind of look at that way the same way Paul says in Galatians do not become tired in well doing in other words don't give up S- stay with the task Amen. You were in the jail today. I was there this morning. All right. And a number of kids stood to receive Christ this morning. Praise God.
3: This is Alan Fredo. Alan, what's your problem? My problem is trying to feed the poor in our area. Three or four miles just right down the road is the number one area in the United States that is food insecurity. Hope County is the second highest in the United States for food insecurity. What that means is there's not enough food to go around. Some of the children have breakfasts and lunches at the schools, and when they go home, there's no food. On the weekends, there's no food. So we have tried to put together a group of people, month after month, thousands of people that we feed three or four miles down the road, surrounded as the most affluent area in the state and in that small hamlet Highland City is one of the if not the most poorest area right in our own community and what we've done is we've tried to raise money support people there's a group in our church now that comes out and helps us fill bags sort food stuff the bags full of food cans cereals basic supplies month after month after month the Lord spoke to my heart a while ago. It says in Isaiah, feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as the noon. We are helping widows. We're helping foster children. We're helping the orphans out there. The things that Jesus told us to do, when you do the least among us, you're helping him. So I encourage you, what I can do financially is more than you can do. We'll take your cans. We'll take your cereals. Please make sure they're in date. Mm -hmm. But I can get the food when I scavenge around can by can by can, month after month after month. And when we distribute, it starts all over the very next day. But for 19 cents a pound, I can get food for people and fill bags month after month. And we've been doing this for several years right in our own community. And you probably drive right back down Bartow Road and don't even aware of what's going on now.
1: Thank you, Alan. Angela, I mean, besides me, what's your problem?
4: Uh, My problem is kids, (laughs) no, in need. (laughs) Um, Specifically kids in the foster care system. Um, So many times these kids just flounder in a system and they don't have a voice. And so in every state, there's a volunteer program, a guardian ad litem. And I became a guardian ad litem um, nine years ago, and I am an advocate for these children. It's, it's super easy, but the impact is just huge. Um, usually I just have one case, which is one kid or one family, but I meet with them just once a month, and then I talk to the judge about what I think should happen um, in that child's life, and um, the judge listens. And actually listens to me more than the other people because you know I have been the one spending time and I'm in, you know the case managers are, are fantastic good hearted people but their caseloads are just so huge it's more than they can do so I can come in and and help the child and help the system and um, I would encourage everyone it's 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 very little time but a huge impact And the uh, forms we gave out last week when you were leaving, I have some more of those um, on the info desk that has numbers and uh, the website if you're interested.
1: All right, thank you so much, folks.